Well, good morning and happy Mother's Day to all you mums out there. It's not an easy job and uh, we applaud you and love you for all you've done for us all because we all have mothers. It's, uh, today we're going to do a bit of a, a journey through the whole Bible. But anyway, before we start, let's uh, pray. Our gracious Lord, we, we thank you for the gift of your word and we thank you for revealing yourself, your love, your purposes to us and your word. And we pray that now as we uh, look at this uh, passage in the Old Testament, would you would help us to learn and that we'd be challenged by what you have to speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. And this we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We've done a little bit of travelling over the last decade. In uh, 2012, we spent a few days in Dubai. And while we were there, we visited, visited the Burj Khalifa. That's that building you see on the screen. It is actually the world's tallest building. And it soars an incredible 828 metres into the air. It's an amazing engineering masterpiece. And we actually took the uh, tour to the observation deck. And uh, on, the, on the way through, they sort of tell you all about uh, how, the, how the Burge was built, all the engineering details, and it was quite a feat to build a building that tall, which wouldn't fall over. The observation deck is 580 metres above the ground. And uh, the view is quite amazing. What we're looking down on is 50 and 60 storey buildings. We're at 580 metres. And if you went out in the observation deck and you looked up, I said look up, we still had 40 storeys to go above us. By comparison, Sydney Tower is only 308 metres high. This thing's 828, nearly three times as tall. People from very earliest times have always built towers. Some towers are built for defence, so you can spot an enemy approaching from a long way away. Some towers were built as tombs for kings or emperors. Some were built as elevated places of worship, temples. So if you built a tower, you're closer to the heavens, closer to the gods, so you can communicate to the gods a whole lot easier on the top of a tower. And some, some were built as symbols of prestige and power. That little arrow shows you where the observation deck is, by the way. And certainly the Burj Khalifa makes an impressive statement as to the wealth and prosperity of the little tiny country of Dubai in the Middle East. We find one of the very earliest examples of tower building in the biblical account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11, which was read to us just a moment ago. And this account happened around 4,000, 4,500 years ago, 2,500 BC. Now, we have absolutely no idea what this thing looked like. In medieval times, it's been portrayed as looking something like this. Of course, it was never completed, as you know. But, uh, yeah, that could have been what it looked like. 
but it was more likely took the shape of an ancient ziggurat. I think I'm pronouncing that the right. That's a ziggurat in Ur in uh, modern-day Iraq. I think it's Iraq or Iran. Um, it kind of had a pyramidical, pyramidal, pyramidal <laughs> shape, sorry. But that's probably how it began and took shape, uh, this, this tower that was going to reach the heavens. Now, the story of the Tower of Babel and the confusion of languages is fairly unique in, in the ancient world. We've got a, in other traditions, other ancient uh, communities, um, stories of creation. We have stories of the flood. But we've not found, archaeologists have not found any other comparable story of the Tower of Babel and, in the ancient world. It's unique to the biblical account. So the situation, let's just dive in a little bit into this passage. It's described in the first four verses of chapter 11. It's fairly straightforward. It's a fairly simple story. Now, the whole world had one language and a common speech. And as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Now, the plain of Shinar is located in Mesopotamia, or modern-day Iraq. And Babel, which became known as Babylon, I don't know if you made that connection, is shown on the next little map. It's a bit hard to read, but they're in, roughly in the plain of Shinar in, uh, in Iraq is where Babylon, or Babel, is located. Now, the reason for making bricks was that stone was rather scarce in Mesopotamia. And the bricks they made for this particular construction of the Tower of Babel were not just sun-dried bricks. They were baked. They were fired in a kiln. Sort of appeals to my engineering background here. But even so, the bricks they made were fairly still fairly porous. They absorbed moisture and weren't particularly strong. But when tar was used as a mortar between the bricks, the bricks actually absorbed the, the moisture out of the tar and they become incredibly strong. And some commentators actually thought they were like iron when it was all done properly. And that's just a, an example of these bricks laid with mortar. And so having that sort of technology, they were able to... Cons- conceive of building tall structures. So then, getting back to the story, the people said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Now the people here have a common language, you note. And they had a common determination, a common drive to build themselves a city, including a tower that reached to the heavens. Why do they want to do this? Well, the answer is there in the passage, so that they may make a home for ourselves, otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They wanted to make a name for themselves. They wanted to be famous. They wanted to be respected. And they were proud of their achievements. And they're united in this desire to make their own honour and glory paramount above all else. And they had the skills, they had the ability to build something wonderful, something incredible. And they would do it themselves 
without any outside assistance. But you notice there's something else going on here as well. The passage tells us that they are seeking to avoid being being scattered over the face of the whole earth. You see, underlying this building project is a fear of what the future might bring. These people didn't like the thought of being scattered all over the earth. Who knows what the dangers were like out there in the big wide world beyond them. And so they they gathered together and they liked the security and the comfort of being together. And so they attempted to secure their own future as a unified community, isolated and protected from the rest of the world. In other words, the city was their place of security, place of refuge. And the tower was a symbol of their pride, of their success, of their abilities. They themselves were the authors of their security and success. And notice that nowhere is there any mention of God. So it's at this point we're told, whoops, what happened there? That the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. Despite building this great tower that will reach the heavens, it is still minuscule when compared with Almighty God, the creator of the world, of the universe. And it's as though God looks down from heaven, just out of the corner of his eye, he sort of sees what they're doing in this plain of Shinar, this city they're building, this tower they started to build. And so, in the words of the passage, he descends to check out what they were doing. So God looks at what's going on and he says in verse 6, If as one people creating, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, and nothing they plan will be impossible for them. It, it seems that some sort of consultation takes place amongst the Godhead or some angelic council and a decision is made to descend again for judgment. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. You know, it's important to understand what is going on in this verse, in verse 7. Whoops. Yep. What happened there? Where's... Yeah. Sorry. It is not that the unity of the people itself is a problem, but it's what motivates that unity and empowers it. Human unity here is for the purpose of isolation, of separation, of self-preservation and self-glorification. And such unity goes against God's express purpose of filling the earth and subduing it. This was the instruction God gave to Adam and Eve, if you remember, in the Garden of Eden. And it was also God's covenant direction again in, to Noah in chapter 9, which he had read to us as the first reading. This was God's direction. He says to Adam and Eve, he says to Noah, be fruitful and increase in number and, keyword, fill the earth. But here we find, not too long after the flood account, the people here 
kind of saying again, ah, we don't like God's plan. Instead, they want to stay in one place and secure their place in the world at one, in one place. And they are therefore ignoring God's directive. They're ignoring God's command, God's purpose. And basically, putting it bluntly, they're disobeying God. They're sinning against God. That's what sin is, disobedience to God's commands. And so God judges and acts. But again, notice how gracious God is in judgment. And while his judgment doesn't um, create difficulties, his judgment actually works towards preventing projects that could be carried out by self-serving, self-preserving, united people. God makes it so that they've got no choice but to obey his covenant command. And note, he doesn't destroy them this time, as he did with the people before the flood. In other words, God creates confusion and diversity in order to help people fulfill their mandate to fill the earth. And so did you know that the reason the place is called Babel was because the Lord confused the language. Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for confused. And as I said before, the name the other name by which this place was known is Babylon. Now the issue in this passage is that God has a purpose for the world. He's got a purpose for his people. And that purpose has an outward focus for people living rightly with God, themselves and the environment. The people in this passage have an alternative purpose. It's doing what works for them. Doing what works for them. What they think is the better way to go. However, if God was to to allow them to pursue this, the result would be losing sight of God's ultimate purpose for them. And so it is that God protects the people from their own self-centeredness by driving them out. They could no longer continue to build their city, build their tower, if they couldn't understand each other. And if you've ever been to a foreign country where another language is spoken, you'll know that it's difficult to understand or to, to, to get your message across or to understand what they want you to do. And so if you're trying to build a building project, you can imagine the difficulties there. So the whole thing was abandoned. And the people headed off to fill the whole earth and not just to be part of it. A small part of it. Now at this point I want to telescope outwards for a moment and look at this story in the context of the whole Bible. No, this is not going to be a really, really long sermon, but we will be looking at the whole Bible. And the Bible can be seen as a story of two cities representing two different approaches to life. On the one hand, there is Jerusalem or Zion, which represents a life focused on God and his purposes, being obedient and faithful to the Lord. And then on the other hand, there is Babylon or Babel, which represents a way of life that's focused on people and human interests. From Genesis 11 all the way through to the closing passages in the New Testament, we are told the story of these two cities. Babylon and Babel is always seen to be under judgment 
because of its attitudes and actions. Whereas Jerusalem or Zion is often in danger of turning into a Babylon, but it will eventually be victorious if it hangs on to being God-centred, God-focused. Now the way the Bible ends is to tell us about the end of these two cities in the last pages of the book of Revelation. Babylon is seen to be a harlot, a prostitute, who is judged by God and is driven out of his presence, whereas Jerusalem is represented as a bride who is married to the Son of God. Now, the representation of these two cities throughout the Bible operates as a choice. It offers a choice. And the hearers, the readers of Scripture are asked to choose their allegiance. Which city are they going to reside in? To which city will they belong? The city of the tower builders on the plain of Shinar, who sought security in themselves and their own purposes, or the city whose builder and architect is God Almighty. Now, another important biblical theme throughout the first 11 chapters of Genesis, and which will become increasingly evident in chapter 12, which Stuart's going to deal with next week, is that God is a God of mission. God's purpose in his world is to seek and save the lost. And throughout the Bible, we see God pursue this purpose in all his words and his actions. What God seeks to do is return us to where it all began, to a world where people live in right relationship with him, with each other, and with the environment in which he's placed them. After the fall in Genesis 3, two things must happen before a return to Eden is possible. Firstly, the world needs to be forgiven. And secondly, the world needs to be told of God and his purposes and his forgiveness. God's purpose for the world is therefore always outward-looking and other-person-focused. What's happening in Genesis 11 is that humans are choosing to be centred on their own security and tenure, on their own comfort. And as we saw, God judges this kind of self-centredness and forces people out of that situation. He causes disunity in order to help them acquire the right kind of unity, unity with him and his purposes. When we turn to the New Testament, we find the same message occurring again. God's purposes haven't changed. He wants people to know him, to be reconciled with him. And the only way this is going to happen is for people to go out and fill this world with the message of salvation, the message of new life, the message of new life in Jesus. Now, Jesus reiterated this in his last words to his disciples in Matthew 28, verse 19. Should be familiar. Jesus said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' last command to his disciples go into all the world. Tell them the good news of what's happened, the good news of salvation, the way to be reconciled with God. That was his instruction. And then with this in mind, we then jump over to the book of Acts 
Acts chapter 2. One of the other great Bible passages that talks about languages and the events on the day of Pentecost. Immediately leading up to that is the, uh, the ministry of, of Jesus. Jesus ascends to heaven, then 50 days after that comes this day of Pentecost. Do you notice in Acts chapter 2, the disciples are gathered together in one place? What's happening here? People seem to want to gather and collect together. They're united in the knowledge and, uh, of the events that happened with Jesus' death and resurrection. But hang on, didn't Jesus say to go into all the world and tell the world about this? God acts again. He sends the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives them the ability to speak other languages. And they burst onto the streets sharing the good news of what Jesus had done for them. And many people became Christians as a result of this act of God, uh, this miraculous uh, speaking in tongues. It's almost like a reversal of Babel, a symbolic reversal of Babel, when people could understand each other once again. So the disciples there in Acts 2 are united, not doing going out in their own way and not doing it as a way of self-preservation or self-focus. They are united in preaching the gospel of true unity, unity with God and his purposes. And so God gives these people the ability to speak across cultural and political barriers because there was now the message of God's kingdom, which is God's common goal for all humanity. As the story moves on through Acts, the fellowship of believers grew rapidly in Acts. There were several thousand of them gathering in Jerusalem. But here too, God had to intervene again to move them out to take the message of the gospel to the whole world, to the ends of the earth. It took the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 8 and the rising persecution in Jerusalem to force the early believers to scatter and in so doing, the gospel was preached to the ends of the entire Roman Empire. So what about us? As we've seen, constructing and possessing buildings is always a risky venture for the people of God. God's people are like all people on earth. And although we know we should pursue God's purposes, we sometimes slip back into wanting what ordinary people want, what most people want, security, comfort and tenure. And the evidence for this can often be seen in our attitude in our, to careers, towards money, our finances, towards our relationships, our families, church buildings and the like. This shift away from centering on God and his purposes and becoming inward-looking is often slow and subtle. But it feels good to be comfortable, secure, in the midst of people who know us and love us and share with us. It's very real. But the result is that we don't do what God brought us together to do. We fail to fill the earth and subdue it through the preaching of Christ crucified. 
And instead of going to all the nations, we stay at home and focus on building comfortable houses and careers, families and church buildings. And don't get me wrong, it's not that these things are wrong in themselves, but simply that we can sometimes give too much importance to them. They can take our eyes off God's intended purpose for us. And yes, there are risks and dangers in stepping out of our comfort zone and following the Lord's will for our lives. But let me assure you, from personal experience, it is absolutely worth it. When I was 39, I can still remember back that far, I left a well-paid, comfortable engineering job to pursue full-time ministry. It was hard going back to being a student and uh, to studying for three pretty intense years. And there was a lot we had to give up as a family. But let me tell you, it's been the adventure of a lifetime. It's taken me personally, Kathy and I, all the way to Africa. And we've met and shared with many amazing people along the way. We've seen God work in the lives of stacks of people in incredible, marvellous, remarkable ways. And I'm blessed to have been a part of that. God wants us to become fully committed disciples of Jesus who are faithful, adventurous, compassionate and enduring. You might have heard those words somewhere before. But God is a faithful God. He wants us to be faithful to him. And he has an incredible adventure for each and every one of us if only we open our eyes and follow him along that journey. He wants us to be compassionate towards others. And as that compassion goes out towards others, as we seek to help and love other people, that feeds us, that feeds our souls. And he wants us to endure Yeah, times get tough. There is sickness, hardship, unemployment, all sorts of things hit us at unexpected times. But God calls us to endure and he gives us the ability to endure. He gives us the strength to endure. He doesn't leave us stranded high and dry if we are faithful to him. The question I want to leave you with is will we trust God and risk the journey He has before us. It is a risk, but it's also a journey, a journey of adventure, of excitement. But we we need to remember what happened to the people of of Babel who turned themselves inward. We need to remember what happened to the early disciples when they just looked too close and forgot God's command to scatter across the whole entire earth. And I just pray that it doesn't take persecution for us to take this message to heart. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for calling us to be your precious children. Lord, you've given commands in your word for us as to how we should live our lives. And may we be faithful to your desire to share the gospel of hope, of love, of new life with those we love and care about, our friends, our neighbours. And Lord, may we take every opportunity to step out of our comfort zone, take some risks 
and watch the incredible things you'll do in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.